Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Friday, December 11, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. This evening, we're talking with Emily Conrad, author of the book Faithless Electors, The Untold Story of the Electoral College. It's an interesting book that poses some deep questions and raises some troubling doubts about the way we go about selecting our president. Now, you may think you voted for a president in this past election, but no, your vote ultimately amounted to nothing more than strong advice. The real voting takes place after the general election, when 538 mostly unknown persons meet at state capitals in every state across the nation. These 538 people, known as electors, are the ones who actually cast the votes for the president. This year, for example, the electors will cast their votes on December 14th, tomorrow as of the time this podcast is being released, But will they actually cast their votes consistent with the will of the voters in their states? Well, by state law, they're supposed to, but the law in this area has almost no teeth. And that being the case, some electors may decide to vote for someone else. These people are called faithless electors. But has this ever happened before? Well, yes. Emily Conrad, in her recently published book, documents the faithless electors that participated in the 2016 election. She tells their stories in this book, and she tells the story of the Electoral College itself, including its history and why it's getting a lot of criticism these days. Emily Conrad graduated summa cum laude with a triple major in economics, German, and Spanish, and the distinction of Phi Beta Kappa. She completed a Master of Law in China Studies with a focus in international relations at Peking University in Beijing, China, where she was a Yenqing Academy Fellow. Faithless Electors is her first book. Emily Conrad, uh, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start at the beginning. Um, The Electoral College is something that's been confusing and confounding people for generations. Um, Can you briefly describe to us what the Electoral College is and why was it created this way? Well, I think that you did a very good job in your introduction. Um, Normally, when somebody asks me what the Electoral College is, I always start by saying, yeah, when we voted in November, we actually weren't voting for president. We were voting for electors that would then vote for president on our behalf. Um, That is the system that we have in place. That is the Electoral College. Um, And I do delve some into the history, as you mentioned, of the Electoral College in in my book. Um, And the reason for that is that the Electoral College, um, as it was initially ideated by the founders, of the country has changed a lot. And I wanted to really explore what that is, because what we have today is often a debate on whether the Electoral College should or shouldn't exist. And then people go back to the founders and the founders statements, and they start delving into these very deeply constitutional arguments. And what I wanted to do rather than delve into that because it's been done by several scholars on both sides of the aisle very, very well, 
Um, really what I was hoping on doing in writing this book was explaining how the Electoral College actually functions today. Um, not how it was supposed to function, not how the founders ideated it, um, how it how it actually works. Um, the Electoral College was in, in and of itself, if you go back to when it was put into the Constitution, it in, an, it in, in and of itself was certainly a system of compromises. Um, and it was really also compromises based off of the historical era. Um, and really, you saw a lot of uh, challenges. You Really, popular vote was something that was not really ever considered mm -hmm. at the time. And I recently read an article that was also saying that the founders were taking a look at what, what was happening in France at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and you take a look at, as they were coming up with a system of how to select an elected um, and an, a leader of an executive branch, and they were looking at what was happening elsewhere in the world, there really wasn't a precedent of how to do that. And so I think that this was the system that they came up with based off of a lot of compromise. And of course, if you take a look at the historic, uh, the historic uh, realities of the time, there were a lot of challenges when it came to communication, transportation of the 18th century. Um, and a lot of the founders were very concerned that uh, that people would just vote for the people from their local areas, from their regions that they happen to know of, mm -hmm. not a, not who would actually be best for the country as a whole. So the Electoral College was a way um, to kind of mitigate against that risk. Um, so people would vote for others who were respected in their states. And then these electors were each given two electoral college votes. And it was stipulated in the Constitution at the time that one of these votes had to be for somebody who was not a resident of their state. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really interesting to see the sorts of things that the founders thought were so important um, back then. And you start to realize that uh, if you start taking these arguments into the present day, they may they might not necessarily be as important today. I mean, communication, transportation, and, and the era of social media, this isn't really a problem anymore. Um, but this is the system that we have. Yeah, it's interesting. I think you brought it out in your book too. That that and and you touched on it lightly in the last uh, comment there that there really was no precedent for the peaceful transfer of power at the time. So the founding fathers were really kind of in the dark, really, just uh, exploring new territory with this electoral college. They, they were indeed. And when you start to, to take a look at, at the mechanism that they produced, yes, it is extremely complicated uh, to, to study. Um, for me as a researcher, I can attest to that. Mm -hmm. But there is also a certain beauty of, of the compromises and the mechanisms that exist. Yeah. Well, there was the 12th Amendment, and you wrote a little bit about that as well. Could you uh, lightly touch on what happened? Uh, I guess there was some sort of issue with voting for president and uh, the Electoral College was somewhat at the center of this issue, but uh, so they made yes. some sort of a change. So a lot of people, they, they forget that when the Electoral College was uh, first came into being, that political parties in, in our modern interpretation of what those are, they, they just simply didn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, so the Electoral College was supposed to uh, basically existed it, whenever political parties started to arise within the American system. 
the Electoral College really didn't know how to deal with that. So, um, you know, George Washington was pretty obvious that he was going to be the first president of the United States. But then after he, um, he, he stepped down after his second term, there was really a, a kind of a, a crisis of where the country was going to, to mm-hmm. be led into in which, uh, would you have the Federalists or the Anti-Federalists? And you had these competing, um, these competing ideologies. And that really comes out at the time when the Electoral College was first created, you had um, each elector had two votes and the person with the most electoral college votes would become president, and the person with the second most electoral college votes would become vice president. Um, what this meant was that you had a president belonging essentially to one political party with John Adams and a vice president, uh, Thomas Jefferson, belonging to a different political party. And an administration divided was something that was, was very difficult for, for a nascent country. Um, so the 12th Amendment was uh, just basically allowing the creation of party tickets and um, and making the 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 basically the the president and the vice president into two separate contests. And then in that way, you could actually have a party ticket win the presidency and the vice presidency rather than having it divided. OK. So the the concept of electors, and this is where we get into like faithless electors, because the concept of electors was actually their their people, their you know physical people that cast the votes, and they can't be a member of the Senate or the House or anything like that, right? So um, it all comes down to individual people voting, and so um, I, and and you you talked about the uh, national popular vote at one point being uh, discussed. I think it was Pennsylvania's James Wilson that brought that up, and it was shot down, um, never to be consider- given serious consideration again. But um, isn't that kind of vulnerable, though? I mean, you're, you're basically saying, okay, the whole country is just going to boil down to uh, just this handful of people. Uh, didn't they feel at that time that was um, not exactly fair? Well, uh, well, when we talk about the founding of and of the country and the electoral college, um, it's important to realize that electors were not always chosen by the state's popular vote. Mm-hmm. Um, in several instances, they were handpicked by a governor, um, and even by 1824, one fourth of the states uh, had their electors handpicked directly by the state legislature. So it's it's really, you know, you start to see that uh, even within the Electoral College, different states had different ways by which they administered the Electoral College and um, having the Electoral College even uh, even related or associated with a popular vote at all. Um, is not something that necessarily existed even into, I think, even into, um, I think finally by the late 19th century, you started to see those two things associated with each other. Hmm. But that, especially when it first started, that did not exist, that connection. Hmm. So um, getting back to your book, uh, um, faithless electors are not something that, you know, everyday Americans hear about. And so I'm kind of curious. So what inspired you to write this book, uh, not only about the Electoral College itself, but about these individual people? 
Well, I was uh, writing an, an article in graduate school and I needed to include some information about the Electoral College. And, and, and as I was doing my research, I came across a couple of sentences that talked about faithless electors. And I didn't know what that was. And I considered myself an educated person. So I started doing some research. And the more that I researched, um, the more I became interested in this topic, because in 2016, you saw the most electors, um, the most faithless electors in modern presidential history. And they came from both sides of the aisle. They didn't come from just one political party. So, and I was wondering what is happening in our political system in the United States, where you would see this sort of, uh, this sort of um, kind of, protest votes against one's political party um, in, in such a public way. And so I began to really uh, really get interested into this topic. And as I was just skimming through some of the news media, uh, you know, covering faithless electors, one of the things that really struck me was the diversity of the narratives that I was hearing. And I just wanted to know the stories behind um, behind the results. Um, why did you see so many Wash uh, Democrats in Washington State vote for Colin Powell? Mm -hmm. For me, that that just didn't make sense from the outside looking in. Um, why did you see, um, you know, two Republican electors completely step down? I was wondering, did they did they step down because of pressure from uh, the Republican Party? Was it that state? Was that uh, the National Republican Party? And I was very interested in really understanding what was happening. And at the same time, because of my my backgrounds in international relations, I was wondering about the security of the of the system as a whole. Um, could you see electors being influenced by a foreign bad faith actor? Um, by the time I was writing this, everybody was talking about uh, foreign uh, interference and Russian collusion. And I thought to myself, you know, that was, you know, with with Facebook, um, you know, but and, you know, and targeting certain groups or certain voters. But if you take a look at it at the end of the day, at the end of the day, there are 538 uh, electors uh, who really count. And those would be very easy to identify. So this was something that was going on in the back of my head, but I tried to keep an open mind and I started reaching out to the electors individually um, when I would find their, their contact information online. And I'm very grateful that so many of them, um, both Republicans and Democrats, decided to share their story with me. Mm -hmm. Well, you, um, you talked a little bit about security and let me dive into that a little bit because um, you you describe the individual electors as typical people with their usual imperfections that go along with being human. And um, to me, this sort of raises some concerns because, because of our electoral system, our presidential elections depend on this extremely small number of flawed individuals, right? Which is a fraction of the voting population. And so as flawed humans, these electors are, as you mentioned, uh, vulnerable to outside nefarious influences such as, you know, foreign powers looking to sow discord in our country, or even perhaps, you know, current presidents that don't want to concede the results of the general election. So um, assuming that, you know, electoral system is not going to change anytime soon, um, what is being done to uh, head off this sort of um, security issue or the, this um, 
you know, the, the influence of outside nefarious uh, governments. Uh, is there anything being done to guard against this threat in the future? Um, there was the Supreme Court cases and um, that um, that basically said that state laws to bind electors to the state popular vote are not unconstitutional. Um, and this was decided on in July. It was argued in May of this year. Um, this was basically, uh, this was uh, Colorado versus Baca. Um, and Michael Baca is one of the electors I interviewed in my book and uh, Chafello versus Washington. And uh, Chafello is also, Brett Chafello is also an elector I interviewed in my book. Um, the decision that state laws that bind electors are not unconstitutional, how, you know, as, as even though that a lot of people thought to themselves, oh, this is great. Um, the reality is, is that many state laws uh, and many states have no such laws or have no such uh, strong binding elector laws. So besides the besides state individual state laws that can bind electors, there's really not that much being done to safeguard against this. Mm -hmm. And I do find that concerning because, as I mentioned in my book, there was a lot of not just, you know, I mean, it sounds really great to talk about foreign governments and that sort of thing. A lot of intrigue with that. However, you know, and, and since you've read my book, I mean, you, you see that there were a lot of pressure, even from family, friends, almost all of the electors that I interviewed received death threats. They received lots of emails, mails, phone calls, uh, trying to influence them to vote one way or another. And that, if you're an everyday person getting boxes of mail um, a day that that has a lot of impact. Um, interestingly, when I wrote this book, I wasn't going to to include anything in the book that I couldn't um, verify. But um, since I've continued researching into this topic, I've talked with several electors from 2016 that have said that they had been offered uh, bribes. Oh, and wow. of course they turned them down. Mm -hmm. um, these were, uh, these, these, uh, these things were, were sent on to uh, the Department of Homeland Security, um, the FBI. But this, these were things that, that did happen in 2016. And for me, that's, um, it seemed to me that the more that this happened, the more resolute the electors became, that mm -hmm. they were going to do the right thing. Um, but it's very interesting to think about um, the electoral, when we talk about our presidential elections, this is one part that is often forgotten, this human aspect um, of, of the electoral college. And we often forget that electors are actively lobbied. And you take a look at Robert Alexander's research, and, and I do delve into his research in my book, uh, electors are lobbied just about every single election cycle, for, whether a Democrat wins or a Republican wins. Hmm. So that it's that's I think extremely important to realize, and it's something that's kind of uh, got gotten swept under the rug. And instead of discussing the issues associated with the electoral college, uh, media just kind of talks about whether it should or shouldn't exist. Well, now you've got me all scared again because it's not quite December fourteenth <laughs> of this year, and I ha no, I, it's not. I can't help thinking that there's an awful lot of pressure on these individuals, and I guess their their identity is known to everybody, right? I, I mean, for people who are curious enough to find out, you can find out who your electors are, and I guess there's really no 
no security around that at all, then, is there? Well, I mean, the, the, the electors are elected positions. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, if, if we didn't know the identity of our electors, that would also be a problem, yeah. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um, that might even be a bigger problem than knowing exactly who they are. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, yes, you can find out who your electors are. Um, you know, normally some states uh, publish uh, the names of electors. Some are required to by law. Some will um, will give you the names of the electors if you request them. Some you mm. have to have a Freedom of Information Act request. But um, yeah, these are this is something that can be discovered. Wow. You know, it's interesting too. Just kind of a side note here. Uh, speaking of the 2016 election, all the news uh, uh, outlets they talk about the electoral college vote in 2016 being 306 versus 232, but it really, really is not. It was actually 304 versus 227. So um, it's just not that well known. But I guess the people that want to know about it, uh, that have a need to know about it, will will know about it. I guess. Well, that that's what I really tried to, you know, I, I think that a lot of uh, whenever I start talking about the Electoral College, I can tend on maybe the more academic side. But, I, you know, in my book, I, what I what I've tried to do is to present the Electoral College through these electors stories, um, really delving into how they became involved in party politics to begin with, because um, electors are typically um fairly well-known figures within their political party, within their state political party. So how they became electors, um, how, um, how, they, how they got involved in the party, how they became electors within their, their party apparatus, and then what happened in 2016 that made them think about not voting for the winner of their state's popular vote. Um, I really wanted to explore that. And even though every single elector that I, I interviewed kind of has a similar, I guess, a narrative, a similar art, you know, like a similar story where this happens, you start to realize their motivations are actually quite different. And the way that they got there is quite different. And I think that a lot of the times, you know, if you didn't exactly, if you didn't know the background stories, you wouldn't understand how Faith Spotted Eagle received a uh, an electoral college vote uh, mm -hmm. to become president. And that electoral college vote was actually the first electoral college vote for a Native of uh, somebody um, of Native American descent. Mm -hmm. So it, it's really interesting. The uh, you know there were quite a few interesting things pioneered by this 2016 electoral college. Yeah. Well, um, it, it was it was very interesting how you wrote about it in your book that that many of these electors, um, they sort of obviously they 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 were willing to become electors at one point. But uh, one of the common themes I see in your book among you know, the backstory of these electors is they really didn't expect to be electors. They were just I could actually see myself being in that position like, yeah, I'll just throw my name in a hat and see what happens. And then all of a sudden, hey, I'm an elector. What does that mean? You know, and then they get they get uh, slowly involved in this in this system that, um, yeah. They, I mean, it, one of the things that, that I like about it too is that there there are, like you say, there are reasons for these electors to do what they're doing, and they are working on good faith. Um, but it's really difficult to see that if you don't dive into that background. 
Well, and then it's also problematic. Um, you know, it, it's for, for me, one of the, the things uh, that really drew me to this topic is that I really empathized with every single one of these faithless electors. Mm-hmm. And um, I tried to tell their stories and their stories were basically that they believed that they were doing the right thing for the country. Every single one of them, not one of them did what, what, the, what the country told them to do, but mm-hmm. each one of them thought that they were doing what was best. Um, And at the same time, it brought up very problematic questions of what is the Electoral College and what do we want it to be and what should it be? Um, Should we have uh, electors bound to a state popular vote? And if we have electors bound to a state popular vote, what keeps us from binding them to the national popular vote? Yeah. Um, and so these are very interesting questions that, that we really have to think about. Um, how do electors become electors? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that really stuck with me was that, you know, out of the, the people that I interviewed, I interviewed eight uh, electors, all but one of them were actually uh, elected democratically within their party apparatus at a state caucus or a convention. Um, like a congressional district caucus or state convention or something like that. Only one of them was actually appointed um, by a state executive committee. Mm-hmm. But if you take a look around the country, there are a lot of states that actually just appoint their electors. And so if you start to look, you start to realize that there are a lot of state party chairmen serving as an electors. Mm. There are actually quite a few governors, attorney generals, uh, former presidents, um, just, I suppose, um, in many of the, in many of these instances, they're hand selected. Um, is that what we want our electoral college to look like, or do we want it to look more diverse, more democratic in nature? And um, and but the thing is, is that if they're democratically selected, oftentimes that they feel maybe slightly more empowered. Oh, my peers put me here, yeah, yeah. <laughs> rather than my my party chairman put me here. Right. So you start to realize this electoral college, you know, we, we talk about it like it's a monolithic organization. But the reality is, is that we have all these different electoral colleges in all these different states um, and they operate differently state by state. Yeah. Well, as per original design, too. Right. It, it's supposed yes. to have that variation. But you mentioned uh, national popular vote. Um, I don't know if you were referring to that organization, but there is an organization called National Popular Vote. Uh, dot com, I believe. Um, and they're pushing for this thing called National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Um, not sure if you're aware of them or not, but... Um, I, I am. And yeah. um, and some of the electors now, um, Michael Baca and Brett Chafeller, are both uh, actively um, volunteering for that organization. Okay. So uh, you're starting to see, um, yes, so, so basically one of the things that, that this does is that they say um, if enough states sign on that they will all vote for um, the winner of the national popular vote. The, the electors will be bound to the winner of the national popular vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's going to, you know, right now, just binding them to the state popular vote, um, you know, we can't even agree to that state by state. Yeah. So I think that getting, you know, electors bound to a national popular vote um, might be very politically difficult to do. Yeah. Um, well, it's being done right now. Uh, I believe Colorado just signed on to it uh, in this past election. And I think that the trigger point for national popular vote to, to be enabled or to uh, to have the states that sign into it to actually implement it 
is to make sure they have enough electoral votes to accumulate to 270 or more, right? And then mm-hmm. I believe they have like 74 more electoral votes to go. And they have a lot of the big states already, but 74 is a pretty steep number, I would think. Uh, it is. Yeah. Do you do you support the idea of having a popular vote for president these days and, and uh, jettison uh, the electoral vote altogether? I think that... I, I my my gut instinct is that any changes to the electoral college will will basically change how politics uh, occur in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, if you take a look at it, I think that one of the biggest safeguards to the two party system in the United States is the electoral college. Um, and in particular, the winner take all mechanism of the mm-hmm. electoral college. If you take a look at um, at the Electoral College, it's, you know, um, and a lot of people say, oh, it's not representational. And, you know, and some there. But, you know, basically the amount of representation that a state has in um, in the Electoral College is the exact same representation that they have in, in Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge that exists is the winner take all mechanism that exists in most states except for Maine and Nebraska. And it was it's really interesting to see. It's the way that, um, you know, Trump was going to Nebraska trying to win over that one congressional district um, in the week before the election. Um, You start once you have this district congressional system, you do start to see a lot more competitive races. Um, but the challenge that does exist, and it's one of the things that I'm all often really quite interested in, is that if you get rid of the Electoral College, I do think that you'll start to see kind of the two-party system kind of uh, really weakened in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know what the, and so I'm, I'm sometimes surprised whenever one party says, oh, we, we're going to support this or we're going to support that. Um, and I think that, um, you know, and a lot of people who, who are, who are supporting the national popular vote, I think that, you know, some are clearly thinking that this will allow for a plurality of voices within the American uh, political system. Sure. But I think many haven't quite gotten to that part of the uh, part part yet. Right. Um, just a couple of changes to the Electoral College will dramatically change how our presidential elections are run. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, so I, I think that this is something that that we really have to be. I think it's something that we have to be careful and cautious on. It's something that really needs to be debated by um, by scholars and policymakers alike, mm-hmm. um, rather than kind of. I feel like right now we're kind of in more of a simplistic debate rather than thinking of the nuances of how this will affect um, the country as a whole. Yeah, but the way it works right now, though, is that the states that are considered the battleground states. Uh, they just get a whole lot more of attention from from presidential uh, candidate uh, uh, campaigning as and uh, and right down the line, right? So California, that's a foregone conclusion. It's blue. It's as always going to be blue. So why even go out there and campaign anymore? The Democrats exactly. can put it in their pocket, and the Republicans can totally write it off. Um, but you know, it's um, it comes down to like you know Ohio, Pennsylvania. Uh, Florida, uh, boy, oh boy, they get a lot of attention, right? And and even in the years that we're not running elections, uh, presidents tend to favor those states for uh, uh, friendly tariff deals, or they're much quicker to react to natural disasters. 
uh, things like that. So these these mm-hmm. states get a lot more of attention. So I can see that this electoral college thing is is skewing the um, attention from from the top down in our country. Well, and and even starting you know a congressional district approach. I mean, basically, and one of the things that I often uh, that that I do mention about my book. Every single one of the Democratic electors who voted faithlessly in 2016 were originally supporters of Bernie Sanders in the primary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that would have that could start to happen is if you start to see congr- the congressional district method, uh, the congressional district model taking approach in many of these states, is that you might start to see a lot of presidential elections where neither candidate gets candidate gets 270. Mm-hmm. You might see right. regional candidates starting to sweep through one region of the state of the United States or another. You might see a group of progressives, very strong in certain uh, congressional districts, being able to keep uh, being able to sway the vote towards one candidate. And then what would end up happening is that a lot of these uh, elections would end up in the House of Representatives right. as a uh, contingency election. So it's, you know, in some ways, you know, what you start to do once you really start to unpack the system that we have, you realize, for for me, um, I think that sometimes just talking about whether the Electoral College should or shouldn't exist is maybe a little bit, um, you know, should it, should it or shouldn't exist? Well, should it be reformed first? Should we consider certain reforms in this process? Um, to kind of see where this might end up rather than just kind of jumping in, you know, to the deep end yeah. without really having a sense of, of what, what's to come. Yeah. Yeah, right. You could be opening up a real Pandora's box and, um, yeah, then elections get thrown into the House of Representatives and that's going to be a huge headache for just about everybody involved in it. Well, yeah. and, and, you know, and, uh, but at the same time, as it exists, as is, I, you know, I think it's pretty obvious there are some reforms that, that, that need to be enacted, um, regardless of what pol- side of the political aisle that you're on. Uh, you realize that there, after reading my book, that there are some levels of reforms that need to be enacted to make the, the Electoral College more secure. Um, and, and, you know, and on top of that, I think that there just needs to be a better sense of public cognizance of the system that we have, um, rather than putting in partisan agenda into, into it. Um, because the rules of the, of the electoral college are there, they are, they are written out. Um, but unfortunately, um, media kind of skews it, um, rather than just telling this is what we have. Yeah. Well, to that end, and we're kind of wrapping things up at this point, but do you have any advice to our listeners who who are looking at this electoral system and and the concept of the faithful electors and saying things like, wow, you know, we need to fix this thing? What do people do? What do our listeners do at this point? Well, I, well, of course, I'm going to shamelessly promote my book at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but, but I'm going to say my book should not be the ending place. Um, it might be a good starting place for people who don't want to, don't want to pick up a book about the Electoral College and be preached one agenda or another. Um, basically, I tell the stories of eight different individuals, Republican and Democrats, um, and their journey through the Electoral College and kind of explaining the process and explaining that in the process. So my book might be a good place to start. Um, 
And then after that, there are a lot of, um, I hope that it would prompt a lot of different questions um, that people can think about when it comes to the Electoral College. Um, should electors be bound? And if you believe that electors should be bound or unbound, you know, that's actually the, the Supreme Court has put that into the courts of the states. Mm -hmm. So you need to understand, does your state have binding elector laws and or will there be binding elector laws on the agenda? Um, interestingly, Texas in 2016 had two faithless electors. There were binding elector law, uh, elector uh, laws that were considered by the Texas Texas legislature, and the Texas legislature rejected them, hmm. saying that that was not the original intent of the founders of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So it, it's you know this is going to really be a state by state thing, and if somebody has strong opinions about the electoral college, one way or another, really um, that you know that. The, the, the real battleground for where the Electoral College is likely to take place coming up here soon isn't going to be in a national arena. It's going to be state by state. Mm -hmm. And so I encourage people to understand their state election codes. Um, I've talked with, uh, with, uh, with uh, people involved in several secretaries of states who manage the Electoral College. They've been extremely helpful. And um, that would be a great place to start. Just understand the system that, that exists um, understand how electors become electors. Um, and if you feel strongly about how people should become electors, uh, you know, also understand how the major political parties choose their electors. Yeah. Just bring cognizance to the issue um, and start exploring that. Um, you know, this isn't, this isn't a, a hidden topic. It isn't like a dark money topic. Uh, this is something that's actually quite transparent. You can look it up. Um, uh, the secretaries of states will will talk with you. The state parties will talk with you and, and explain because it's in their, you know, it's in it's in their 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 laws and their mm -hmm. their their bylaws. So this is out there in the open. It just takes a lot of people to explore um, and really research so that we can understand what we have. Yeah. Well, I think one of the most compelling things about this most recent election was that there um, that there was a seven million vote difference between Biden and Trump. But really, because of the electoral system, it came down to forty six thousand <laughs> between mm -hmm. you know, the various different states, and that uh, that's an eye opener for me because that that says, wow, how can forty six thousand people uh, go against the will of seven million? But you know, there are other things to consider. And I, I like the idea of starting with your book, getting familiar with the situation, uh, not just looking at the at those two numbers and saying, well, this is ridiculous. It's just, you know, punt the whole thing all together. We really need to be careful what we do. The, yes. Um, and then also realizing that, you know, changes, uh, and especially for people who are, are kind of frustrated with uh, the, the two-party system or, or might be wanting to have some level of, uh, of reform or have more plurality of voices within this political system, the Electoral College and reforms to the Electoral College may be exactly the way to, to do that. Um, and that this should probably, for anybody involved in, in third party movements, um, this, this should definitely be a part of the discussion is Electoral College reform. Um, you know, Basically, the Libertarian Party got on the map because of a faithless elector, uh, Roger McBride, who I cover in my book. Um, this is the Electoral College is uh, is really a, a, a very interesting mechanism. 
Um, and it's uh, and the way that it develops in the future will definitely have a say of what of whether or not we'll continue to have two parties or if we'll have a multi-party system or anything along these lines. It's an integral part and it definitely needs to be researched and understood and we need to be having dialogues about it. Well put. We've been talking with Emily Conrad, author of the book Faithless Electors, The Untold Story of the Electoral College. I highly recommend putting this book on your reading list. We'll put a link to it on the podcast notes. Emily, thank you for stopping by this evening and sharing your thoughts about our Electoral College and its faithless electors. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Also, keep in mind that the podcast has a Twitter page at Alliance On Air. And if you have any suggestions for future topics or people we might interview in a future podcast, please drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in and see what we're all about and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.